Whenever we are studying a passage, it's always important to understand and to remember the context of the passage. If we don't know the context, if we don't understand what has been said and what is being said, and sometimes even what will be said, it's easy to have difficulty with the passage or misunderstand a passage. And in my own experience, I have found that that is especially true with the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, when you take out just about any section, there are verses here and there that we like, verses you've heard quoted many times. But when you get beyond some of those basic verses that many of us have heard and read many times, and you look at some passages in their in bigger portions, sometimes the book of Hebrews is, is very difficult and it's very hard to understand. And it becomes easier, I think, at least it has for me, when you keep in mind the big picture of what Hebrews is doing. So first of all, remembering that Hebrews is written to, or maybe even a sermon that was preached to, a group of Christians who were from a Jewish background, and it seems that they were tempted to give up on their faith and to return to Judaism. They were a people that had suffered, they had been persecuted, who knows how many trials and temptations they faced, and they, were, they had not given in, and they had not yielded, but that was a serious temptation. And so the book of Hebrews is a letter, a sermon that is given to them to show them why that would be such a tremendous mistake why that would be such an, an awful idea to go back. And it does this by so showing the superiority of Christ, by reminding these people things they already know, things that they've learned, things that they know. But as Peter says, sometimes we need to be stirred up, we need to be motivated by way of reminder. And so Hebrews reminds these people that Jesus is superior to all things, even to the law of Moses that they had grown up with and that they loved so much that to go back to that would be to choose inferiority and to choose something that could not save them. And so that's the big picture of Hebrews is why Jesus is superior. And as it does this, it reminds the people that the superiority of Jesus should not be a shock. It's not a, it's not a new thing. In fact, the entirety of the Mosaic Law, the Old Covenant, looked forward to Jesus. Now, it did so in types and shadows and prophecies with details being filled in here and there until Jesus came and we saw the final picture. We saw the final revelation. But it's not like God had planned on using the Old Testament and the Mosaic Law and then gave up on that and decided to go with Jesus. He had promised this from way back in man's history. And so the Old Testament is used frequently to show that Christianity, to show that Christ's kingdom, that Jesus' kingship was always the plan in God's scheme of redemption. And so if we keep that in the back of our minds and we look through each passage with that lens, that helps us. And then I think looking at the big picture arguments helps as well. So not to, we're not going to preach through these again, but just to remind us or refresh our memory of where we've come so far in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews starts out, doesn't really have an introduction or a greeting or a, the thanksgiving that is so familiar in many of the other epistles. It begins immediately with 
the first point, the superiority of Jesus, and especially the superiority of Jesus to the prophets. This is where we're reminded that even though in times past God spoke through prophets and through dreams and visions, He has now spoken through the Son. Jesus is the superior revelator of God's will. And there is none greater than Jesus when it comes to revealing God's will and God's nature and God's person and God's will for our lives. And moving on from this, from chapter 1, verse 5 through 2, verse 18, the Hebrew writer then shows us that Jesus is superior to the angels. Uh, Again, we're not preaching this, so we won't go into all of the reasons why, but he quotes many Old Testament passages showing that God made Jesus and that Jesus was greater than the angels. He's greater than prophets. He's greater than angels. Now, in this is one of the first warning passages. One of the things to look for as you read through Hebrews is there are five main warning passages, and these are passages that have some great exhortation, great reminders for the people then and for us now, and the idea of not neglecting salvation because of Jesus' greatness is the first warning. And then chapter 3 through 4 verse 13 then moves on to show that Jesus is greater than Moses. Now in the Jewish mind there's hardly anyone greater than Moses. In fact you might have to argue uh, who's greater, David or Moses or Abraham, but beyond those individuals Uh, No one stands above those individuals. Moses was the lawgiver. He was the deliverer. He was the friend of God. And yet Hebrews shows that Jesus is greater than Moses. Now if Jesus is greater than Moses and Jesus has instituted a new covenant, then by default surely Jesus' covenant is greater than the covenant that came through Moses. Moses, And in this we find uh, the second warning passage about not hardening our hearts. So that brings us to the next major idea. So we've got Jesus is greater than the prophets, greater than the angels, greater than Moses. And now, in really the lengthiest argument uh, of Hebrews is Jesus' superior priesthood. So you might say he goes from Moses to Aaron. Aaron was Moses' brother. Aaron was the first high priest. And it's the high priest that's going to be the major focus of these next next few chapters. And Jesus is going to be shown to be a greater high priest. And really you can even take this into chapters 8, 9, and 10. Uh, They follow right on the heels of this, but more so uh, in the work of Jesus' priesthood and of the idea of the tabernacle and the covenant that Jesus has set up. So really this section goes through chapter 7, verse 28. It includes the third major warning passage. But today we're going to focus not obviously on that entire section, but on the introduction to this new main argument in Hebrews, the superior priesthood of Jesus. So our passage, beginning in 4 verse 14, going through 5 verse 10, it helps me to try and outline a passage, to try and think uh, when I'm studying a passage or teaching a passage, to think, okay, how is this broken up? How can I organize this passage? And so this is how I would organize this passage uh, uh, maybe this helps. The, the the opening verses that we read, the end of chapter 14, and I know the, the, the chapter and verse numbers are often very helpful and sometimes they're confusing. And this is one of those sections. Uh, if you were going to make a chapter break, I think really you should, have made, you should make a chapter break at 4 verse 13 because 4.14 goes with chapter 5. So hopefully that's not too confusing, but that's why we're covering the end of 4 and end of the beginning of 5 because they go together. But these last three verses of chapter 4 are an introduction. And it's a little strange, at least to me, 
because uh, as a speaker, as a teacher, what I often, the approach that I might often take is you make your points and you make your points and then you give application at the end. But Hebrews, uh, at least in this section, the Hebrew writer gives an exhortation in his introductory statements. He goes to the priesthood of Jesus, which he has alluded to and he has mentioned a little earlier in Hebrews, but he's not developed that thought. Now he transitions out of this argument about Moses and he says, since we have this great high priest, let us do this and let us do that. And then he goes on to prove the statement he just made. Because the question might be, well, should we do this and should we do that? Because is Jesus a high priest? Is Jesus a greater high priest? Well, yes, he is. Now, this makes sense, again, when we remember that the writer or the speaker is addressing Christians. They have already learned this. They have already learned this nature, but they are being reminded of these things. And so he begins with a powerful exhortation of how we should respond and the hope and confidence we have because of Jesus's high priesthood. But then he goes on, the first four verses of chapter 5 describe the priestly office. And they kind of discuss the role and the qualifications. And those, those concepts really blend together. You might remember this from when we've talked about elders and when we've talked about deacons. There's not necessarily a hard, stark line between qualifications and role. Qualifications mean that a person can do a role. And so in these first four verses, we find a bit about what makes a high priest? What are the qualifications of a high priest? And in that, we also see what does a high priest do? Now, that may seem like a strange conversation. Why do we care? Why do we need to know that? Well, because Jesus is a high priest. And it would have been very important to these people who had grown up under a system in which the high priest was very important to their faith and to their salvation. And so they needed to know and understand that Jesus was a high priest and that he was a greater high priest. But to do that, you have to know something about who the high priest is and what he does. And so the first four verses of chapter 5, in very brief format, tell us about that. And then the last several verses of our passage really introduce Jesus' priesthood, showing that Jesus is a high priest, that he is qualified, that he does all the things and has done all the things that we would expect from a high priest, all the things that we need from a high priest, and yet also shows that he does them in a far superior way. Now, one thing that I'll say as we are introducing this section is, again, this is an introduction to what goes all the way through chapter 7 and even into chapters 8, 9, and 10. And so what we'll talk about this morning and this afternoon are really all ideas that we're going to be fairly quick about because they will be developed further. The idea of Jesus' sinlessness, the work of Jesus as a high priest, the fact that he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek, all of those things are discussed in more detail in the subsequent chapters, but they're all introduced in this passage. So keep that in mind. If something seems a bit vague or fuzzy right now, hopefully it will come into clearer focus as we read and continue to study through the book of Hebrews. Now for today, the way that we're going to go through this is a little different. And this really bothers me because I'm a linear thinker. And so if I have 4 through 14 through 5 verse 10, I feel like that's how I should go through the passage. But I really struggled as I tried to do that of how to piece it together. And so what 
we're actually going to do is kind of mix this up a little bit. And this morning, we're going to focus on really chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, the description of the priestly office. Now, again, it makes sense in Hebrews writing to his original audience. You can see the reason. But for our purpose, we're going to start with the priestly office and what is discussed about the role of the high priest. And then we will discuss Jesus' high priesthood, which is really discussed in both of the other sections, the end of chapter 4 and 5, verses 5 through 10. And then lastly, we'll consider the let us, the application, what the writer says. This is why we should be thankful. This is how we should be thankful. This is how we should respond to Jesus' high priesthood. So, Lord willing, my plan is to get through that first one this morning, the role of the high priest, and then this afternoon we will cover those final two sections. So, let's reread Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. The writer says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice and for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God just as Aaron was. So, if you really wanted to study the role of the high priest, and that would be a beneficial study, I think it would be an interesting study. You can go back to the book of Exodus, and you can read in the book of Leviticus, and you can learn about the institution of the role of the high priest. You can read about all of the, the specifics that they were charged to do. You can read about the special garments that the high priest wore. You can go do a very extensive study on the high priest. And again, I would encourage you to do that at some point. I think that would be a beneficial study. Hebrews gives us a very bird's eye view, so to speak, of the role and the qualifications of the high priest because it's not about rehashing every aspect of the high priest but the important factors of the high priest. And as we look at this and see what does a high priest do and who is a high priest, we learn the keys. So first of all, one thing that we see is that a high priest is a man who is appointed by God. The first thing there, and this is very simple, I understand, but it's also very important, is it's a man. And by man, I, I, it's male. He's male, not female. No females were given the role of priest or high priest, but he's a human. And we'll make some more comments about this, this here in a bit. But God did not establish angels to be priests. He established men. To be priests. And so when we need a priest, according to God, we need a man. But not just any man, the high priest must be appointed by God. Now, we live in America, and our system, you know, we like our democratic system. We want leaders, we want rulers to be appointed by us. We want people that can prove their qualifications, and then we vote on them. The high priest wasn't selected by vote, that's not how the high priest was selected. The high priest wasn't selected by volunteers. Some positions, you have to get volunteers. You know, who's, who's willing to do the job? That's not who is the high priest. The high priest was always selected by God, appointed by God. Now, Aaron was the first high priest of the Mosaic system. God chose Aaron. And you know, that's kind of an interesting concept right there. Why didn't God choose Moses? We're not really told why. But he chose Aaron, and he also chose that it would be Aaron's sons 
that would be high priest after him. And so God established from Exodus 28 forward that under the Mosaic covenant, the high priest would be a descendant of Aaron. Now, there wasn't really much about qualification. Now, there were qualifications he had to meet. He was supposed to do these other things. But if you were born the eldest son of the high priest, you were appointed by God to be the next high priest. And this was very important because this was God's pattern. One of the ways that Israel sometimes, or those that would apostatize from Israel, would change things is they would change the priesthood. For example, when Jeroboam set up his kingdom, which was okay, God had ordained that, but instead of trusting in God and allowing his people to go back to Jerusalem and continue to worship in accordance with the law, he worried that if the people kept going back to Jerusalem, that one day their hearts would turn away from him and he would lose his kingdom. And so he set up a new religion. It was a lot like the religion down in Jerusalem, but it had some key differences. First of all, it had golden calves to worship. It had images. He set one up in Dan and one in Bethel. That was a big no-no to create these images. He, he changed the feast dates. They were like the feasts that were held in Jerusalem, but they weren't the exact feasts that were supposed to be held in Jerusalem. And one of the other things that we're told in 1 Kings 12.31 is that he made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. Appointing priests who were not by God qualified to be priests was a big deal. The priests were selected by God. Now, something that's worthy of note for the Hebrew letter is by the time we get to the first century, the high priesthood was no longer a hereditary appointment. By the first century, the high priest was chosen by Rome. Rome is who set up the high priests. It had become a very political office. Now, I think the fact that God allowed this to happen from the time of the exile until the time of Christ, that this priesthood is changing, it indicates what God had said through His Word also, this was not the final way. And now, in the first century, after Jesus has come and the church has been established, and these Christians are thinking about going back to Judaism, not only are they, would they be rejecting the high priesthood of Jesus, which is superior, they would be going back to a system that couldn't even live up to its original design. And today, the same is true. You cannot find and prove a descendant of Aaron to be a high priest. It's impossible to have a priesthood in Judaism the way God designed it under the Mosaic Covenant. So if they were to leave, they would be going back to not only that which was inferior... But they would be trying to go back to something that really no longer existed. Now, also, we see in this passage that the purpose of a priest is to act on behalf of men in relation to God. This is a priest's job. If you summed up a priest's job, it was to act on behalf of men. And I think that's a beautiful and a wonderful thing. The high priest, that's quite a title, to be called the high priest. And when we think of rulers and we think of uh, high officials, we think of men of power, men of prestige, men who have a lot of honor and glory in their role. But the high priest's role was not for his own benefit. It was a role designed by God to benefit and help others. 
Unfortunately, this is another way that the priesthood was often abused. What comes first to mind is uh, Eli's sons uh, that we read about in 1 Samuel chapter 2 who abused the position of high priesthood. But the priest was supposed to act on behalf of the nation. And the, the priesthood is not a one-to-one correlation with church leadership. In fact, in the New Testament, we are a kingdom of priests. We are all priests in a, in a sense. And so it's not that teachers or preachers or elders are the priests and everybody else are lay people. That is not the design of the New Testament. But from the leadership aspect, I think this is a lesson that's worthy of remembering and noting that as teachers, as preachers, as elders, our role in those forms of leadership in the church is not for glory. It's not for power. It's not for financial gain. We practice, we serve in those, those realms of leadership on behalf of others to help others in their relationship with God. And that's what the priest, that's the work that he did. That's how he helped. That's how he worked on behalf of others was regarding men's relationship with God. And that's very important. And to understand this, we kind of have to go back to the very beginning. See, in the beginning, man had a perfect relationship with God. In the beginning, God, man was created in God's image, and he was placed in the garden. Adam and Eve were told that, that, that they had dominion. They were given dominion. They were to practice dominion. They were to be image bearers and good rulers over God's good creation. And as they did so, they were in perfect harmony and perfect relationship with God. But sin destroyed that. Sin destroyed man's relationship with God because a holy and perfect God cannot abide with sinful men. Thus, man was separated from God. And separated from God, he could not be the perfect image bearer and the perfect ruler that mankind was meant to be. Now, God could have simply forsaken humanity, destroyed humanity, given up on humanity, but he didn't. Instead, he enacted a plan that would allow mankind the opportunity to be redeemed, allow sin to be forgiven, and allow humanity to find restored fellowship with God. Now, this plan would take a long time and is still being enacted. But through this plan, God chose and God saw fit that there would need to be an intermediary. There would need to be an intercessor between men and God to help others with their relationship with God. At first, this was more direct, and through the patriarchs, men served as priests for their families. Men like Abraham, men like Job, who functioned as a priest for their family. Now, and it's during this period, by the way, that we actually find Melchizedek. This will be studies uh, to come later, but he is called priest of God Most High. We're not told about his selection and appointment by God. We can assume he was appointed by God, but it's during this period that Melchizedek lives. But then we come to the time of Moses and God's revealed law to Moses and the nation of Israel. And under this law, God selected the tribe of Levi to serve as priests. And for background as to why, you can go read Exodus chapters 32 and 33, why the tribe of Levi ends up being selected. But the Levi is selected, and then Aaron specifically is selected to be the high priest and his descendants from that time until the law of Moses would come to an end. But then ultimately, and this is the argument of Hebrews, God would appoint his son, Jesus, 
to be the great high priest who would really and truly bridge the relationship between God and humanity. And we'll see why that is the only way that humanity's relationship can be restored in a little while. But as a priest acts on behalf of men in relation to God, one of the key ways he does this is by offering gifts and sacrifices for sin. When we think of a priest, this is probably, at least the Old Testament priest, this is probably one of the first things that we think of, is the offering of sacrifices. It was the priest's job and role to be directly involved in offering the bulls and the rams and the goats and the lambs and the burnt offerings and the wave offerings and the grain offerings and all those different offerings that you can read about. Those were handled by the priests. Now especially important and what is typically in view in the book of Hebrews is the sacrifices that were offered on the Day of Atonement. And that's another thing you can go back and study, and it would be good background information. The readers of Hebrews, the original audience, were very familiar with the Day of Atonement and its importance. But it was the one day in a year when the high priest would go, would offer a bull on the altar of sacrifice. He would offer a sacrifice for himself. He would offer a sacrifice for the people. He would then go into the holy place before the altar of incense. There he would take the censer. He would be covered with the burning smoke from that altar. And then he would go into the final chamber of the tabernacle and later the temple, the most holy place. And he only entered this room once a year. And only him. Nobody else ever went in this room. He went in there once a year. He sprinkled some of the blood from that sacrifice on the Ark of the Covenant where was the mercy seat of God as a sacrifice for God's people. So that was the premier key sacrifice of the, of the Old Testament system. And this happened every single year. This was the high priest's job to offer this sacrifice for himself and for the people. Now, why is this such a big deal? Why is this important? Well, remember... Sin is the reason that humanity was separated from God in the first place. And so if our relationship with God is going to be restored, then sin must be dealt with. And sin requires death. As we're told in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Paul says in Romans 5 verse 12 that just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Sin is a serious thing. Sin is not a light thing, not something to trifle with, not something to indulge in to any degree, because sin brings and requires death. Now, the problem is for us to die in sin would separate us from God forever. And not desiring that to be the case, instead God permitted and allowed a sacrifice to be offered. And from the time of man's departure from the Garden of Eden until Jesus' crucifixion, humanity offered animal sacrifices for sin. Now think about what this did. First of all, it was a sacrifice. And it was a sacrifice for the person. You see, you weren't supposed, David had the right attitude, he would not offer God that which cost him nothing. You weren't just to go steal someone else's lamb and offer. That's not a sacrifice. It was to be something of yours. And it wasn't supposed to be the sick and feeble lamb that was going to die anyway. It was supposed to be a year old lamb that was perfect, that had no blemishes. It was the cream of the crop. It was the firstborn. That required some trust and faith in God. And it was a sacrifice that was made for God. Now, these sacrifices would remind people of the seriousness and the penalty of sin. 
They may have gotten used to it over time, but can you imagine having to go? And while the priest offered the sacrifice, and people brought, because there was the, the Day of Atonement, but then throughout the year, people often would bring sin sacrifices to atone for mistakes that they made. And I want you to try and imagine what that would be like to take that bull or that lamb and you lay your hands on it with the priest and you watch the priest slit that animal's throat and you watch the blood pour out and you watch the life fade from its eyes and you watch death. And you remember that's because you sinned. It's a pretty stark reminder of how bad sin is when you see its consequence in action. Sacrifices taught the important, the, the danger and the seriousness of sin. But important and required as they were, all of these animal sacrifices had a problem. They could not truly forgive sins. This is a point Hebrews is going to develop later. The blood of bulls and goats cannot redeem and wash away man's sins. And so these sacrifices actually pointed forward to the sacrifice that would have that ability. So sin is a serious problem, and sin sacrifices need to be handled seriously. So God appointed priests to mediate between sinner and God in the offering of sacrifices. Now, something else here, it does say that the priests offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. Some think that this is just kind of a repetition. Gifts are just synonymous with sin sacrifices, and that's possible, but I think that this may refer to some of the other offerings that were given, and in the old law there, were, uh, there was the stipulation, the ability to offer free will offerings free will sacrifices. There was more to the worship of God than just coming and killing an animal. There were songs of praise. There were prayers. There was worship. There were feasts. There were free will offerings. And so while sin is a serious thing that needs to be dealt with, equally important is worshiping and praising God who has allowed us to be redeemed of our sins. And I think that's what this is alluding to is the priest helped lead in dealing with sin through sacrifice and in leading people in praising and worshiping God. The priest helped men draw closer to God via worship and sacrifice. And then priests are to help the ignorant and the wayward. That specifically says to deal gently with. Now, when we think of the Old Testament, we often think of all of the sacrifices and you know the strangeness, wiping blood on the earlobe and on the toe and sprinkling it on the altar and all of these rules and regulations. And we think of the ceremonial worship. But even under the old law, all of those things were designed and intended to draw people closer to God, not just on a feast day, not just when they came to make a sacrifice at the tabernacle, but every single day. What God wanted was not just rituals, and this will be developed in Hebrews as well. It's not just about going through these practices of burnt offerings and sacrifices. It's about holiness. Leviticus makes this point. God says, Be ye holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And as the priests led, they didn't just go out and kill a bull and offer a sacrifice and then rest the rest of the time. They were to be spiritual leaders. They were to help 
teach people in God's ways. They taught the ignorant so that the ignorant didn't have to remain ignorant. They encouraged the wayward, exhorted and admonished the wayward so that they could return to the living, to living the way that they ought to. They led the people and they drew the people closer to God through instruction and encouragement and help. Now, as they did this, they needed to have the right attitude. Priests were not supposed to be high-minded and self-righteous. The best priest would deal gently with people in order to guide them to God. The priest's goal was not to drive people away from the Lord, but to draw them closer to the God. And as he did this, the priest would need to remember he was not a different class of being that stood between God and man. He was himself, after all, a man. Thus, he could sympathize with those whom he taught and guided. And this brings up a question. It brings up something we've already mentioned. God appointed men to be priests, not angels. And when you think of that, why not? Because at first it might seem that an angel would be the perfect mediator between God and man. He's not quite God. He's higher than man. So wouldn't an angel be the perfect bridge between humanity and God? Well, that might make sense. But could an angel truly sympathize with humanity? That's a question that I, always, I often wonder. What do the angels think of us? But also, is it even possible for them to have an accurate understanding of us? They are different beings than we are, living a very different existence than we do. So would an angel, as powerful and glorious as an angel might be, really be a fit priest between us and God? God apparently didn't think so. Instead, God chose a man to be priest. But this brings up a dilemma. So man needs a sympathetic high priest. Man needs someone who can understand him. Someone who can sympathize with man's weaknesses and problems. But as an intermediary between God and man, man also needs a perfect, sinless priest. This is an idea that's going to be developed just as animal sacrifices could not actually do away with sin. A sinful high priest will never be effective, fully effective, at bridging the gap between man and God. And so it would seem there's a dilemma. We need a sympathetic high priest, but we also need a sinless high priest. We need a man, but we need God. And this is absolutely impossible in the Mosaic Covenant. This is impossible as long as a descendant of Aaron, as long as just a man is filling the priesthood. But it's not a dilemma. It can't be a dilemma because this is God's plan. This is God's appointment. So how is this solved? Well, it's solved by realizing that even under God's plan... The Mosaic Covenant, the Aaronic Priesthood, was never meant to be the final priesthood for man. Just as it was never meant by God for animal sacrifices to be the way sins were atoned for, it was never meant by God that the priests in Aaron's lineage would be the priests that mediated between him and man. 
forever. Instead, his plan, both in sacrifices and in priesthood, always looked to Jesus. Now, later, Hebrews is going to point out and discuss the sinless nature of Jesus and why that is so important. But here in this passage, the emphasis is on Jesus' ability to be the first part, to be a sympathetic high priest, because Jesus is both man and God, because he is the eternal word, and yet because he was also incarnated, because he put on the flesh of mortal man, he lived with us, he suffered with us, he was tempted like us. He knows what it, this is what we're going to get into more tonight. But he knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to be a weak mortal. But thankfully he endured all of that without sin. And as a sinless perfect man, he became both the perfect sacrifice that could wash away man's sins and the perfect priest who could stand between God and man and bridge the gap so that we could be redeemed and our fellowship with God could be restored. Jesus is the great high priest that does what high priests were always meant and designed to do. And how thankful we should be that we serve and we live under Jesus, the great high priest. Lord willing, this evening we'll come back to consider the final aspects of this passage where we will show, where the Hebrew author will show how we know this. That's a beautiful idea, but especially to people in the first century tempted to go back to Judaism, they might say, prove it. Prove why I should give my life for Jesus instead of going back to what my ancestors for generations have known. And the Hebrew writer will do that. He'll do that in great detail, but he'll do it even quickly, briefly as an introduction in this passage. And that has some great ramifications for us and how we should act. So I look forward to going through that study, and I hope that you'll come back this evening to be a part of that study as well.